0: Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpin' Radio heard from one of America's most thrilling singers, chatted with the Dean of American Soccer Writers, and talked pancakes with a leading Chicago author. All this was the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for July thirteenth, two 2018. I-94 spoke with personal essayist Megan Stielstra about her work and her life in 1990s-era Chicago. Stielstra talked about learning her craft, why stand-up performances are essential for a working writer, and how bartending made her a better storyteller. I-94 with Jeremy Kitchen and Mike Sack airs every Sunday at 11 a.m.
1: Megan, it's it's a delight to have you here. <laughs> Thank you for uh, having me. Megan, uh, for those of you who don't know, is a local Chicago author. We love having local Chicago authors on this show. And I wanted to start off because these are personal essays and our paths actually have crossed at a, a notorious uh, Wicker Park bar, which I'm sure we'll get to in a little moment. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But Megan, let's start at the beginning. How did you get interested in writing personal essays? It's a form that... Um, Obviously, Montaigne made famous, and I think most of us, when we write intensely personal stuff, look to him for inspiration, but it's also something that uh, is very uncomfortable. It's something that when you write it, it makes you uncomfortable probably. I know that when family members read it, it probably makes them uncomfortable. And there's a, there's a lack of comfort and a... a I think a demand on the reader to expect discomfort when they learn personal, very personal things about you, such as your sex life, things that have gone bad in your life, all sorts of stuff like that. Um, I think that is of course what makes the form very riveting, but it's a, it's a distinct choice that an author has to make because um, a lot of times, uh, and I'm speaking you know, as kind of a semi-writer myself. You know, sometimes we go into fiction because we want to write truth but come about it from a different way. Sometimes we write nonfiction. We've had a lot of guys in the show that do histories and stuff Mm -hmm. like that, and that's another way to get a truth. But this is a very distinct and and very kind of um, deep, uh, deeply human way to do it. Mm -hmm. What made you decide to do this particular form of writing? Um, I'm going to go way over
2: here to answer that question, and then I'm going to bring it back around. So just... But roll with me for a minute, but so in in high school I was one of those uh, I think special kind of geeks who would cut class in order to hang out in the library. Maybe some of you are. Wow, some i never of you even are heard of that. My <laughs> people, never <laughs> did that, right? Um, and so I, I would sit there. And it par- partially, it was a coping mechanism, right? Because my father was the principal, which brings its all, all sorts of other stories. And you know, like people threatening to shave my head, and then you know, you if your dad's the principal, you can't you can't smoke weed out back, which is really like, why do we go to high school if yeah, not for that? Problem. And um, that's why I skipped. Right, and yeah. so my father
1: was the AP humanities teacher. So, so you see, we see each other, geography
2: right? Okay, so, so yeah, you you it. you understand. Yeah. But anyway, so I would go in the library and I would sit on the floor and I would read all of these books and um, and the kind of the, the 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 lightning bolt sort of ton of bricks moment for me. I was reading. Uh, Black Boy by Richard Wright. It's a memoir. And there's this scene in chapter 13 where he is sitting on the floor of a library and he is reading, he's, I think he's reading a book by Dreiser. And so, so this is an African-American man, an adult man in the, the Jim Crow South. So he's reading this novel by a, a, a white writer and he talks about how the, the novel let him get into the mind of someone who was different from him. And it was this huge like meta moment. Like here I was, this 16-year-old girl in a very small sheltered, um, white town in southeast Michigan and'm I'm, I'm kind of having this like, the, like uh, this connective experience with this man in in the the Jim Crow South and it really blew my mind and um, I think that that was sort of the moment that the, the world cracked open for me a little bit and 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 I wanted to know how to do that I wanted to I wanted to learn how to write and, and make connections though the way that he was doing so so I had a few false starts but I ended up uh, coming to Chicago in 1995 uh, to study fiction so the fiction is where I started with all of this. And I think that really contributes a lot to why I write personal essays is because my first training was in uh, scene construction, character development, place description, uh, tension building, right? Like all these craft tools of of fiction and storytelling. Um, so I went to, to undergrad to learn how to write like that. I went to graduate school to learn how to teach that way. I studied arts education. Um, and I paid for all of that college because this... Stuff is expensive, right? Uh, Waiting tables and tending bar. Uh, mostly in Wicker Park, like between 1995 to 2005. I worked at the Bongo Room, which is a brunch restaurant. They have a lot of locations right now. And to this day, people stop me on the street and they're like, oh my God, I know you. And I'm like, I know. Well, like I, I wrote these, these books. And they're like, no, you served me pancakes. <laughs> like in 1998, or you made my Bloody Marys. And what was in those Bloody Marys? And like on the train, people come up to me and they want to know the Bloody Mary recipe because it's very... In their you know.
3: defense, though, those white chocolate pretzel pancakes at the Bongo room—people,
2: people, are, are people asked me if there's uh, if if they put cocaine in them because <laughs> like people would just yeah, come back that. and come back and come back. Um, I thought it was breakfast. morphine, actually. Yeah. yeah well, uh, yeah. I mean, who who know? I I can the the owners and the chef to this day are, are dear friends of mine, and I can hear John like, "Don't say that there's cocaine in my food. What are you <laughs> what are you doing?" But it is just incredible food. Anyway, so I would be there behind the bar, and I'm I'm making mimosas, I'm making bloody marys. And, you know, I I think I have some bartenders on the mic with me right now, and and you know that that so much of that work is listening to stories. So it was kind of this really interesting experience where where I started noticing that the same techniques that people were using to tell me stories were the same techniques of storytelling that I was reading with Richard Wright and Kafka and Joan Didion and and Toni Morrison and all these writers who I loved. Um, And I could start tracing back, um, like... Uh, direct address and repetition and um, uh, and, you know so really what are the connections between oral storytelling and written storytelling so I ended up signing up with a a Chicago storytelling collective called Second Story Um, and uh, so we tell stories in restaurants and bars around the city and I worked with our education arm so it was uh, uh, helping support people in telling their own stories even if they didn't have any of that kind of writing or performance background so it was there that I really got into personal essays uh, because specifically that that's what second story was about was telling true stories about yourself the same way that you would tell them to friends over wine or coffee or
4: are they still around
2: they are yeah okay. yeah they're I mean when we started it there were four or five of us in a basement and now it's a company of sixty people and they do three or four shows a month and they travel around i'm I'm less involved that I was than I was than I was back then but that was a huge part of it for me was um was listening to all of these stories of other people Uh, and so really the first time the word essay was ever attached to my name was when i got the email saying that one of these pieces had been selected for the best american essays and then i was like essay whoa, because i'd always use the word story uh and you know we can dig into the you know the great you know there are all sorts of purists who will fight about the the differences of that but um but for me it has a lot to do with with craft i think (laughs) the old
0: The Ponderers spoke to Terry Genderbender, the Mexican-born American frontwoman of Les Butcherets and frequent collaborator of the Melvins. Terry discussed power, music, and feminism with Sandra Trevino. The Ponderers airs every second and fourth Monday at 6 p.m.
5: So just to give you a little bit of context, I just chopped it up to show to where she's talking about um, the stuff that she was going through before starting this new recording. And she talks about the video where she dresses as a warrior. And then she just talks a little bit about other stuff. So it's a, it's a quick interview, just a few, you know, highlights of it. And then after we'll listen to a song. She will be here on Saturday at Taste of Chicago with Flaming Lips and Half Gringa, who's joining us in studio in a few minutes. So let's take a listen to this interview. And the first question to her was like, what was your state of mind? What were you thinking about? How did this recording go? Enjoy. This is the Ponders with Terry Gender Bender. Have you worked through this through the music, or are you still like exploring what you want to do about it?
6: Oh, definitely working through it with the music because it has led me. It leads me to get out of my shell. Like for example, because of the music, I, you know, I've been able to find another musical family to to, to play my songs with and, and rehearse together with, and thus going on tour together, so it's a, that's the nice part where I'm out of my shell and surrounded by, you know, by, by my musical brothers and sisters. Mm-hmm. And and um, now we're taking it to the next step where I'm actually using the music and the and, and experiences as an, a, a perfect excuse to look for, mountain for help. Like I'm looking into advocacy treatment centers to try to understand more my genetic tree... And, and, and just meet other different people with the, that are going through the same issues, which is having mental health issues in and family. And, and talk, finding dialogue to talk about instead of ignoring that elephant in the tree. Right. Or in the corner. <laughs> <remember that>
5: thing. <laughs> the elephant in the room. <laughs> the video for Spider and Waves. You're in a warrior outfit and you've mentioned it's in honor of your grandmother. Can you tell me about that?
6: It's really interesting because I found this out recently uh, when my mother was younger, and her brothers, well, my my well, what would you say, grand un- uncles, and grand aunts, would they would have a ceremony and a custom uh, once a w- a month basis. They where they dress up in their traditional Chichimecan and uh, costumes, or there the, and 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 just thank thank God for all, everything that they that they found each other, that their spirits found each other with the family circle. So, and my mother and my grandmother was the percussionist with the with the, with the, uh, the leather skin over the drum beat, and she would the, the the beat. So I thought, like, that's insane. I just recently found this out. So music has been in a way part of you know my bloodline, mm-hmm. um, and that makes me proud. And because and, and, I yeah, there's lots of things where maybe and the dialogue is there's things over. Ashamed of, of our culture, where people say, Oh, well, I'm ashamed to be this or that, but I'm not to make it better. And I think it's also good to have a bela where we're, we're proud of our, our cultures and, and, and celebrate the differences of what makes our culture special. Mm-hmm. And I mean that in a positive way, you know, which could always be taken in a negative way. You know, like, Oh, well, what about all these paintings in the museums, you know, with the politically incorrect titles, blah, blah, blah. You know, we need to take them down. But I think, you know, history that's what history is there for you know for us to look back on and, and learn to not repeat the same things in the future or, or repeat the things that we want to be repeated depending on what it
0: shows yeah. what
6: works I
5: mean in the video I also noticed and I don't know if this was intentional or not there's this calmness when you see the shadows of the uh, uh, musicians playing and then there's the euphoria of you dancing and stuff was that intentional
6: Oh, that's that's awesome that you noticed. That That was definitely uh, talked about before before the liner notes of it with the director. That um, basically, we wanted to transmit a feeling of, of this connection with people, other people, and, and and sometimes they represent like these shadowy strangers, and even though they're supposed to be your family and everything, even as a stranger or your
7: empty, lonely feeling.
5: So a lot of your songs obviously are, you know, anthems of empowerment for many of us. What is one song that you can tell me that is that for you?
7: Oh,
6: my Lord. Okay. For me? Mm-hmm.
5: Damn.
6: I think it's, it's um, well, recently it's Secret Joven. And 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 not biased, I'm not biased, okay? I, 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 I'm, not, I'm <laughs> featured in this song, but it has nothing to do with me, I swear. i in this bag, and it's an anthem that I've been having stuck in my head. I mean, I just turned 29 recently, so, you know, it's like, you know, the age does not define you, all okay? right? Nope. People that are ages, well, it does define you into some sort, but not, you know, you know it shouldn't restrict you. Right. So that's what I love about Alice Bag's song, You know, Secreto. I did it turns a $1.99 store, and there's some women behind her snickering behind, saying, Oh, look, she's too old to have blue hair. What the hell? Who does she think she is? And that's how the song starts. And then all of a sudden, it breaks out into this beautiful musical ballad of, Oh, yeah, they can, they can think all of me they want. I'm still going to be me. I don't know. It's really cool. It made yeah. me cry. <laughs> I <laughs> <Awesome>. saw it. <laughs>
0: Kiefer Dunn spoke to Neil Lowline and Andrea Hector, members of the International Socialist Organization in town for the Socialism 2018 conference, about leftist perspectives on infrastructure. Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn airs the first Saturday of every month at 2 p.m. Ken, Ken, and
4: Donna, <laughs> thanks for joining us and bearing through the technical difficulties and being a little slow. Um, so we still have a, a, a fifteen minutes or so to chat. And thanks so much for being on the show. I already uh, introduced you guys as Arcanex superstars. And um, um, and Ken, I was also saying, I don't know if you heard that I realized that I I may have been messing up your name royally for the longest time um, because I, uh, I have, of an old Twitter handle or something that like buried its way in my brain so um, for, forgive me uh, on that one
8: <laughs> I keep that I, I operate on uh, various pseudonyms just to uh, try to keep people on their toes
4: yeah of course <laughs> yeah it's it's dangerous out there on the uh, 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 on the posting yeah. world sure. yeah <laughs> yeah well, um, I'm I'm stoked to be talking with you guys about the AIA convention, um, and I, I, you know I kind of. Um it was a weird experience. I mean, I, I think, uh, there are lots of ups and downs and, um, you know, I spent most of my time, uh, with the architecture lobby, um, either preparing for the architecture lobby think-in event that we had, um, or we did some kind of protesting and rallying outside of the convention. Um, but I guess like, I, what are your thoughts on the kind of convention itself this year? Um, what were the highlights? What were the lowlights? How is it different from um, uh, ch- from previous years? Um, as guests of the show will know, I, I usually set the table with a kind of big unfair question like that and see what, what you guys pick up. Um, so, uh, yeah, what do you think? Ken,
9: you go first. You were there yes. longer than I, and I think you have some good stories to
8: share. <laughs> sure. I think um, this one was, was uh, you know, as much hype as it you would have thought, um, as, as it had uh, being in New York City, where it's the center of the architectural universe, um, it failed miserably. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it was I, no, and I really, I mean, I, I there was I've, I've seen some criticism regarding last year's event, um, but there was a lot of big things to take away from that event that I thought. <laughs> started to work its way in some of the chapters and the Minnesota uh, AIA was kind of from my standpoint leading the leading the charge and hmm. uh, take away from so it was like a good message if some of the characters were not always most favorable at least there was something that I could see a, a very uh, clear line where uh, a message was coming out even if you know, it wasn't a great city to be in is not really the ideal city to be right. uh, for an architect but at least there was something that you could take away and you looked at the chapter and say, wow, the, the chapter actually is taking that and actually moving it forward this year. You know, there was all this, there was, all, you know, my biggest pain, um, there was this, a lot of hoopla around Whitney Young's speech from 50 years ago. Right. <laughs> and there was so much lip service paid to that speech. It was more of a, a a, a platform for looking. Hey, look at how how uh, integrated we're doing, and or how integrated we are, and how we're meeting these yeah. challenges, and we're stepping forward. But it was just, you know, if if a, and this is my biggest complaint. If Whitney Young was alive today, and he saw that forty people that are on the delegate, forty delegates that are on the business uh, at the business session, there's this uh, just this small motion. Uh, the small resolution was um, voted on to uh, reaffirm his his speech from fifty years ago. That forty members either abstained or voted against. <sighs> and I just want I just want to I just want to stand up in, in the meeting and go. All right, the forty who voted no or abstained. Could you please stand up so we could <laughs> tell you? <meeting?">
4: yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, and I mean for 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 and those. Now- for those of you who don't know, just you know, Whitney Whitney Young, uh, you know, civil rights leader uh, and and director of uh, uh, HUD way back when, um, yet yeah, like gave a keynote in 1968 and basically told all of the architects in the room um, that they weren't pulling their weight in terms of civil rights, and uh, you know, he got a standing ovation um, e- even though he had really harsh words, and and I think that that really typifies the profession to this day, where there's Lots of uh, applauding, <laughs> right, for for all of the right stuff, right. but but no real action to solve the problem, but just lots of you know things uh, like like a, a performative kind of acts of you know proving that everyone has the right attitude and is woke or whatever, um, but without actually do- doing much, and and that seems to be as applicable today uh, uh, as it was fifty years ago.
9: Well, I think. Go ahead, Ken. Go ahead, me. No, no, no. The the one
8: thing, the the thing that really irritated me the most is when you talk, when the at large people are uh, are taking questions from chapters, and then you ask them serious questions about what is our role in this profession. Yeah. Uh, But what is our role in the world? How do we how do we challenge um, the How do we challenge ourselves to be? You know, what are our values? How do, we, how do we present ourselves to the world? Should we make a statement against um, uh, solitary confinement or imprisoning uh, migrant children and babies in, in, in concentration camps along the border? And the stock message is, we don't want to get too political. And I'm like, you guys have learned absolutely nothing from this statement. So you the, the, Whitney Young would say, Um, civil rights was was of its time, it was contextually appropriate message. But today it's civil rights and human rights. And if you can't evolve to see that you are on the wrong side of this issue and make a statement against what's happening in this country, you are failing.
4: Yeah. And they haven't done that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you Yeah,
9: I I, I think that, Ken, you're absolutely right. Both of you are right. That the the AIA is saying all kinds of the right things. Now, I think at the local level level and at a more sort of grassroots level amongst the younger people in the AIA that I know, I do think that change is serious and it's happening and it's happening slowly. But at the upper level, all I see, and it was on really strong display at this event, at the key, the first keynote, the first night, if everything is so strict, so scripted and so controlled and they have a teleprompter and Robert Ivey walks out and says exactly what's on it and he is not going to deviate because he's afraid to. I, I mean, I will say here, I, I think it's time for Robert Ivey to, to retire. It's time for us to get a new leader. Um, he is, he did not impress me in the least at the keynote that I saw him at this time. He is yeah. just, he's terrified to take a risk. And at this moment in our profession, that you know, risk is all around us whether you're a 50-year-old something practitioner like me or a recent gradu- graduate our profession is changing and changing rapidly and if we're not you know brave enough as an organization to take that on we need new blood that will
4: yeah definitely and i yeah and i <laughs> You know, I think it's it's really telling that they they kind of have this very like PR stick, and and everything is you know written to be as inoffensive as possible by someone else, right? Um, and and uh, you know like using member dues, right? <laughs> um, and it's it's yeah. pretty it's pretty upsetting. Um, but yeah, and and I, I agree. I think it's important to say too, uh, you know, that and I, t- I tweeted about this when I was live tweeting from the convention uh, about how like it is a good. thing. Thing, that even if they're, like, only doing this in a kind of very performative way, that does mm-hmm, open mm-hmm. up a space for the people who are serious. And I think, like you were saying, that right. you totally see that. Uh, and so so it's a really good thing. Um, but also, like, uh, we should never stop holding them to account um, to, to, for, to exactly. be the real deal. <laughs> yeah.
9: Exactly. Exactly. To not just say the words. And yeah. to go off script if you need to because you screwed something up or forgot something. I mean... Yeah, we need to be humans first, <laughs> yeah. and then professionals. Size Matters, Size Matters, with
10: Kyle Seisman Kowski.
1: All right, uh, okay, now this thing's on. Interview with Jessica for the Size Matters producer job. Uh, can, can you work this thing?
7: I've never even seen one of those.
1: Well, I mean, if I can figure it out, anybody can
7: to be honest, I haven't spent much time on that side of the recorder.
1: All right, no worries. You know, we're, we're fairly easygoing at Lumpen, but we are trying to clean up some of the mistakes we've uh, made in the, the past. The
7: host, he's some sort of anthropologist?
1: Mm, he's uh, more of a native. How do you mean? Indigenous to the area. What? You know, he's, he'll be here soon, you'll find out. Uh, what's the show about? Yeah, it's about two to ten minutes long, you know, slice of life stuff. Have
7: you settled on a name? Uh, size Matters. Excuse me. That's the name. Really? Sounds like spam mail. Is this Kyle on the level? Yeah, he'll be here soon. Is that a no?
1: Listen, uh, there's a there's a reason Kyle's the host. He's an expert about Bridgeport.
7: Well, so are you. What does he have to? Walking through the door right now is the guy I saw selling London oh, Radio oh, shirts oh, oh. over by the viaduct. Jameson,
1: J- Jameson, I- Kyle, this is Jessica. Uh, Jessica I, I, this you is doing.
7: Kyle.
10: I made good cash on them t-shirts. Kyle, not, not now. A- and I sold a bunch of swag. Kyle, zip it.
7: This guy is the host. Yeah.
10: Um, yes, he, I am, um, and I'll be honest with you. I don't like no radio journalists and their dumb ethics and journalism nonsense.
7: Wow. And I
10: don't like folks talking at me like they know it all. You ever hear Ballad of a Sin Man? Okay,
7: okay, Kyle, come on, slow down, man. Exploiting the elderly is illegal. Exactly. thank you. I've been telling them. I don't know if this gig is going to work for me. Mm, well, hold on, Jessica. Why don't you ask us some
1: questions before you call it?
7: You ever been in trouble with the cops? Not legally, no. What? <laughs> Next question. Uh, as your producer, will my life be Um, in danger?
1: On occasion, Um, yes. Wait, 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 wait. No, no, of course not. Look, Jess, you're going to have to sign a contract. It's real standard stuff. He's a home
7: bum, and that's ominously vague. Now, we We got got some questions
10: for you. What? You got any journalistic experience and or do you know how to work this thing here?
7: Nope and nope. You're from Chicago? No, I'm new to town. Ah,
1: damn. That's right. I'm sorry, Jess. Ed really wants the new producer to be a local.
10: Bummer. Sorry, guys. Now, wait, hold on. Don't apologize. You're perfect. How about instead of my producer, you be my biographer? A biographer? Uh, ho- hold on, Kyle. You're going to need a recorded device and a stenopad. Um, What's a Kyle,
1: No, stemopad? Kyle, we talked about what we need to fix here.
10: Now, Ed told me to take charge, and so I am. Only size matters. I'm an insider. She's an outsider. The dichotomy you know, is
1: perfect. Uh, Kyle, you know what? Fine. Jess, if you want to get involved with this, it's on you. The good and the bad. Sure. I'm in. Awesome.
7: I just have one last question. All right, shoot. How'd you do with uh, the lump and radio swag out on the street? Oh, yeah, Jamie, we made it like 60. Not cool, Kyle. Not cool. That's yeah, good. It's all 60 bucks. Dude, it's- shut up.
1: This week on The Trump Diaries, Paul Manafort sits in solitary, Ivanka's goods are exempted from tariffs, Scott Pruitt's out, but Fox hack Bill Shine is in, Trump nominates Brett Kavanaugh, the army ejects immigrants, and Trump tries to kill the ACA again. But first this week, protesters chased Mitch McConnell through a restaurant parking lot calling him Turtlehead and asking, where are the babies, Mitch? Steve Bannon was called a piece of trash at a bookstore in Virginia. Stephen Miller was chased out of a sushi restaurant by a bartender who swore at him, causing Miller to leave $80 worth of takeout behind. And Scott Pruitt was confronted by a mother and a young son who politely asked him to resign for her son's health. He did. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 531, July 4th. Scott Pruitt resigned from the EPA. The former co-executive, Andrew Wheeler, will take over as acting administrator. Pruitt blamed, quote, unrelenting attacks on himself and his family for his resignation. Pruitt, in fact, has been involved in a comically large number of ethics investigations under his tenure. Trump tweeted that Pruitt had done, quote, an outstanding job and that he had made tremendous progress on his EPA agenda. Pruitt's final move was to allow an EPA waiver to super-polluting freight trucks. The move will allow a significant increase in the production of a diesel freight truck that produces as much as 55 times the pollution of trucks with modern emissions controls. There is no news on why such a truck is needed. Day 532, July 5th. Trump hired former Fox News executive Bill Shine to lead his communications team. Shine was forced to resign from Fox News in 2017 over his mishandling of sexual harassment claims at that company. Shine is taking over for Hope Hicks. She departed in March. A federal judge rejected a Trump administration request to block three California sanctuary laws. California is limiting the kinds of immigration related information they will share now with federal officials. Trump tweeted that Barack Obama granted citizenship to 2,500 Iranians in an attempt to sweeten the Iran nuclear deal. That is a lie. The claim seems to have originated with a hardline cleric in the Iranian parliament. Trump's personal driver has sued the Trump Organization for more than $200,000 in unpaid overtime. Noel Sintran received just two raises in 15 years, but he reports he had to give up his health insurance in order to get the $7,000 pay increase and trump asked his advisors why the usa couldn't invade venezuela trump then raised the issue three more times including in september to private dinner with the leaders of four latin american nations trump's staff briefed him not to raise the possibility of an invasion however the first thing trump said was quote my staff told me not to say this but day 533 july 6." A global trade war officially began at 12.01 a.m. as the USA and China levied 34 billion dollars in tariffs at each other's exports. China's Ministry of Commerce accused the United States of quote, triple trade bullying for having launched the biggest trade war in economic history so far. Trump has actually threatened to target another 400 billion dollars in Chinese products if Beijing retaliates further. The U.S. Army has discharged some immigrant recruits who were promised a path to citizenship in exchange for enlisting. Some of those recruits were labeled security risk and discharged because they have relatives abroad. Others have been told they're being discharged because the DOD has not completed background checks. It is unclear whether there have been any policy changes in any of the branches. The Associated Press first reported the discharges, which have affected at least 40 members of the armed services. Some of those members are preparing a lawsuit. Trump told a crowd at a rally in Montana, quote, You know what? Putin's fine. He's fine. We're all fine. We're people. Will I be prepared? Totally prepared. I've been preparing for this stuff my whole life. He was apparently referring to a pending meeting in Finland with the Russian leader. In that same speech, Trump also mocked the Me Too movement and suggested that Maxine Waters, a Democratic celebrity, had an IQ in the mid-60s. Trump also taunted Elizabeth Warren, saying he would toss her a DNA kit to prove her claims of Native American ancestry, quote, but we have to do it very gently because we're in the Me Too generation, so we have to be very gentle. We will very gently take that kit and we will slowly tossing it, hoping it doesn't hit her and injure her arm. Day 534, July 7th, many of the records linking separated children to their parents have either disappeared or been destroyed in a new calamity along our border. DNA testing is now being used on children and parents in an attempt to reunite migrant families who were separated at the U.S. southern border. Some 2,000 children remain separated from their parents. The DNA tests apparently are being carried out against some of the children's will. And Paul Manafort is spending at least 23 hours per day in solitary confinement as he waits trial on July 25th. The reason? The facility cannot otherwise guarantee his safety. Multiple Ohio State wrestlers say the powerful Republican representative Jim Jordan knew about sexual abuse when he was an assistant coach at that university because he took part in locker room conversations where athletes discussed the abuse. Jordan has denied any knowledge of the abuse. Day 535, July 8th. Michael Cohen is reportedly hinting he will flip because he wants Trump to pay for his legal fees. He also does not expect Trump to offer him a presidential pardon. Cohen has not yet been charged with a crime. He is under criminal investigation in the state of New York. And Trump trying to spike the United Nations resolution encouraging breastfeeding. The non-controversial resolution stunned observers. The United States apparently threatened to withdraw military aid and hit Ecuador and other countries with punitive trade measures if they didn't drop support for breastfeeding. USA, however, backed off when Russia reintroduced that resolution. Lawyer Rudy Giuliani confirmed that Trump asked Comey to drop the probe into Michael Flynn in a TV appearance. Trump has previously denied that. And it was revealed that Ivanka Trump's foreign-made products were exempted from Chinese tariffs. Day 536, July 9th. Trump suddenly froze billions of dollars in payments to Affordable Care Act insurers. Citing an obscure New Mexico court case, Trump spiked the so-called risk adjustment payments. Those are meant to protect insurers from incurring big losses on taking unexpected high-cost patients. That move could radically destabilize the exchanges on the eve of insurers rolling out new rates for 2018 and 2019. Insurers and public health groups condemned the move as a backdoor attempt to again kill the ACA. The Trump administration missed a court-ordered deadline to reunite immigrant children under the age of five who were separated from their parents at the U.S. border. However, a federal judge who set the deadline said he was very encouraged by the administration's progress. The border authorities have been scrambling to reunite the families despite having many records apparently destroyed. Trump hit out at NATO on Twitter two days before that alliance's summit. Trump said NATO members, quote, must do much more. Quote, the United States is spending far more on NATO than any other country. This is not fair, nor is it acceptable. Day 537, July 10th. Trump announced Brett Kavanaugh as his nominee to replace Anthony Kennedy on the Supreme Court. Kavanaugh, a reliable conservative, is likely to be confirmed. Democrats lack the vote to block his nomination. Kavanaugh has close personal ties to George W. Bush. He is also a deep establishment Republican. England's government is in trouble and may fall after the hard Brexiteer Boris Johnson resigned as the foreign secretary. That move came after a deal was cut by Prime Minister Theresa May that would keep the United Kingdom more closely tied to the European Union than anticipated. May now faces the possibility of a no-confidence vote. Her situation is complicated with a state visit by Trump to England this week. Trump has been pro-Brexit and is set to be greeted with massive protests in the capital. As a result, Trump will largely avoid London, where the bulk of that activity is to be held. Trump also will refuse now to meet with Robert Mueller. Trump's legal team is attempting to wage a war in the court of public opinion. Trump's lawyers now want Mueller to provide, quote, clear and conclusive proof of a crime which is a bar they expect Mueller to reject. Day 538, July 11th. Donald Tusk, the head of the European Union, publicly rebuked Trump for his comments on NATO said Tusk quote the USA doesn't have and won't have a better ally than Europe we spend on defense much more than Russia and as much as China I hope you have no doubt this is an investment in our security which cannot be said with confidence about Russian and Chinese spending appreciate your allies after all you don't have that many Trump claimed he would arrive in the United Kingdom in turmoil after Theresa May's government began to teeter Massive and widespread protests against Trump in the country have led the American embassy to issue an almost unheard of warning to American citizens to maintain a low profile. A federal judge says the Trump administration acted in bad faith when it attempted to add a question on citizenship to the census. Judge Furman called Wilbur Ross's defense of the administration's decision both, quote, potentially untrue and improbable because he said Trump's Justice Department has shown, quote, little interest in enforcing the Voting Rights Act. A lawsuit challenging Ross's decision alleges that question is an attempt to depress the count with a practical impact of reducing the number of congressional districts and therefore electoral college votes, especially in states with large numbers of non-citizens. Those are largely Democratic strongholds. Trump pardoned Dwight Hammond Jr. and his son Stephen Hammond, the two Oregon ranchers whose convictions led to a militia standoff. The pair were convicted in 2012 on charges of arson and their imprisonment led ranchers and militia groups to take over a federal wildlife refuge in protest. That sparked a protracted standoff during which one occupier was killed. Leaders Amon and Ryan Bundy were later found not guilty of federal crimes. A Washington Post poll has 47% of voters overall preferring to vote for a Democrat over a Republican for the House in the midterms in the so-called generic ballot. These are the Trump Diaries.
0: Radio Free Bridgeport spoke with World Cup expert Jerry Trecker about the planet's biggest sporting event. Trecker talked about the surprises of the tourney, England's shock run into the semifinals, and how Russia confounded the experts. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday drive time.
3: In the in the widening and deepening, co- deepening conversation, it's interesting for me to hear both of your takes on, you know, Jamie you mentioned historically that this was a platform that people uh, recruited players from, or or used to to uh, find new talent in, and and then thinking about the conversation about, you know, going from where the EPL is today and all the way back when I was a kid, when the only soccer that you would see, as Jamie mentioned, was was Italian, uh, on TV, um, and and looking at this tournament now, it's 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 kind of a question that I'm hearing is, where is the true value? Is it in the in the season? uh, of the EPL or, or, um, you know, those, those large contracts that are now going to Italy or, or in Spain, um, or is this the tournament that, that nations are, are turning out for? It seems that you'll, you'll certainly see more people that you've, uh, that you don't know much about in, in a widening of, of the tournament. Um, and maybe those are the, the stories that they're, they're looking to have come out of, uh, of future tournaments.
11: Yeah, I think that's certainly part of it, but I also think that what FIFA has tried to do, and it's been criticized for in in part, uh, is to take the game into places uh, where you have to develop top-down. And if you look overall at the development of soccer in the last, say, 50 years, there's no better place to look than the United States because we were a country that 40 years ago didn't even know this tournament happened, didn't care about it, looked at it, as, didn't didn't look at it at all. And now it has become a part of our cultural uh, footprint. It's something that people make time to see. And if, You develop that same feeling uh, in nations uh, in the Middle East, in the Far East. I mean, after all, (laughs) one of the great questions is, well, there are two great questions, really. Why can't the United States find 11 players? But you can ask that question this way. Why can't India find 11 players? Why can't China find 11 players? I mean, there are still major sections of the globe that haven't been turned on to world cup soccer and i suspect the only way you're going to do that is through expanding the tournament and once those nations get deeply involved watch the game grow
1: well you bring up a good point and that that brings my up a question that i i think we've batted around quite a bit but never really hit head on if the united states has embraced the world cup and i I agree with you. I think it has. And I think it's also embraced the game of soccer. Why hasn't it embraced major league soccer?
11: Well, that's fairly simple. It's not good enough. Uh, We have a professional sports culture in the United States that says we have the top leagues and the best players. MLS does not have the best players and is not willing to spend the money to get the best players. We have owners in this country who can pay LeBron James $36 million a year. They can also then pay Ronaldo $26 million a year, which is what he's going to get from Juventus. But MLS designed itself to be a low-budget league with capital control, with small stadiums. It designed itself to be, the, I'm sorry, I'm going to say this, minor league soccer. I don't care what its name is, it has presented itself as a minor league. Until it decides to spend money, it won't be a major league. You and I both know that the best hockey players in the world play in the NHL. The best basketball players in the world play in the NBA. The best baseball players in the world are playing Major League Baseball. The best soccer players in the world are everywhere else, but MLS. That's the answer to that.
3: And the only time the MLS has even taken a swing at that at a big name has been, you know, folks who have already had a, a full career and are kind uh, of. You, you mean know. like
1: Wayne Rooney playing in DC?
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, I meant like Trautman in Chicago.
1: Well, yeah, I mean Schweinsteiger obviously is here, and he's he's acquitted himself well, but I mean. I think that's it's it's ironic to me because people that remember the old uh, NASL, that was a league criticized for having a lot of so-called retreads. It actually had a lot of actually very good players. Um, MLS strikes me as their expansion into talent seems to be far more uh, into more broken-down players than the NASL ever was, Uh, though I may have rose-colored glasses on. I don't know whether you'd agree with me or not, Jerry.
11: The NASL had the advantage of being able to attract players before the salaries kind of blew out of control. But the the fact of the matter is, we have ownership wealth in this country that could compete with any soccer team in the world. MLS simply doesn't want to compete with them. It's not a question of not having the money. It's a question of not having the will. And if you're going to not have the best, then you're not going to attract major attention mm. in this country. MLS has really only two choices. They can either throw away the structure that they have and let all hell break loose and let Atlanta spend $100 million and New York spend $100 million and see where the, the ashes fall. Or they can become a development league, which they are right now, and have American players play for a couple years, and then sell those players uh, to Europe. Heck, they're even selling coaches to Europe. Jesse Marsh left the Red Bulls halfway through a very successful season to go be an assistant coach with Red Bull Leipzig. Mm -hmm. That's all you need to
1: know. That's interesting.
3: The league has had certainly different iterations from when it first started and tried to be a thing that happens, you know, in in football stadiums or, or in other sports uh, stadiums. Now that there's soccer-specific stadiums, um, I, I wonder if there's an evolution. You mentioned some of the, the guardrails that are on the league, and a lot of it I, I, I've seen seems to be, uh, you know, in a sense, to maximize profit of owners. There's not... There, you've mentioned before that this is a league designed for entertainment more than than really highlighting top talent.
11: You know, one of the the, the sad things, I mean, I've been doing this um, in this country for 60 years, and, and I hope that at some point we would really, you know, begin to maximize Uh, our potential, because we, we, in many ways, we're the greatest country of immigrants in the world. Uh, Our World Cup in 1994 proved that. It's the only country in the world that could sell out Saudi Arabia versus Morocco and have 75,000 people in Giant Stadium who actually cared about the result. Uh, That can't happen anywhere else but here. But we have have failed to... uh, to seize the moment uh, in soccer, and as I said a a couple weeks ago, I'm really concerned about 2026, because if we don't get it right by 2026, I think the American sporting public will look at soccer as a foreign sport, something that everybody else does, uh, and go back to say, well, the Bears are really what's important in Chicago, and we'll stick with them. Um, I think we're on a, a very, very tricky and potentially slippery slope.
3: Well, simultaneously, as as the NFL and participation wanes a bit with CTE and other issues that the that league has had, there might be a tremendous opportunity.
11: Oh, the opportunity is Unbelievable. The opportunity is there. Uh, I'm just not sure the leadership is there. And I'm really scared that MLS doesn't have the courage to try to become big time right now.
1: Yeah, of course, the television money, you know, we keep talking about this. Television money keeps is such an important thing, unfortunately, in modern sports. And MLS, you know, when we talk about things like Serie A increasing their footprint in the USA, in the business, they're referred to as a sub-tertiary right. Uh, even the Premier League, which is possibly, if I would say it's the biggest domestic soccer property we have here, that's a tertiary right, which means it's, it's about number four, number five in the pecking order when you're making a bid. Um, some of the bids, you know, that, that television people talk about for these leagues sound like a lot of money, but actually um, are actually a fairly inexpensive way to get a lot of programming on the air. Uh, NBC uh, and Turner have both paid, I think, a, a pretty penny for the, the Premier League and the Champions League, but what they've bought is bulk daytime programming. MLS, on the other hand, is is a subtertiary, right, because it is producing nighttime, primetime programming on which it gets very poor ratings and when you can't draw a one or a two consistently in a primetime slot your sports property becomes very unattractive because of that you know mls keeps talking about how it's got an 80 or 90 million dollar contract and that's you know a bunch of hooey i won't go deep on that one but until major league soccer gives more people more reasons to watch it's very difficult for them to go and then go into the the market and raise more money from both advertisers and television partners. The last time to my memory that MLS did that was when David Beckham signed to the league. They were able to get more money out of advertisers and they were able to get more eyeballs. Um, So there is something to be said for bringing actual players that do attract fans into the stadium. However, I remember also what the old U.S. soccer president, Sunil Galati, said was, you know, sometimes if you make better players and better teams, that does not translate into increased attendance because people don't know necessarily who those players are.
11: Everybody in the world knows who Cristiano Ronaldo is. It's impossible for me to believe that the ownership of Atlanta doesn't have the wherewithal to sign him.
1: That's Arthur Blank, by the way, the Atlanta Falcons owner, for those of you that don't know.
11: Yes. Now, the fact of the matter is, Cristiano Ronaldo was never coming to MLS. I doubt anybody ever talked to him. But if you want to become a major league sport in this country, you have to sign someone of that level and pay him that kind of money. It's as simple as that. Signing Wayne Rooney, whom we've all seen for the last 16 years, doesn't do it. But signing, a, t- I mean, what would it mean to MLS if we had a couple of teams and we know that the- we have owners with the wherewithal to do it? What if one of the MLS teams was competing with Real Madrid for... <clears throat> Killing Mbappe's signature. Don't you think that would be important? Don't you think that would attract attention? Don't you think that would sell tickets? Of course it would. But you've built a stadiums that hold only 24,000 people. You have decided from the start of your operation that you're going to be minor league. <laughs>
0: Contro Tiempo spoke with Alvaro Hernando, winner of the Original Poetry Prize at Poesla en Abril Festival 2018. Hernando, a poet, journalist, and writer from Spain, recently published the book Exclavo. cantro Tiempo airs every Sunday at 9 a.m.
12: Y, bueno, para pasar un poquito más a, a lo que es la poesía, poesía, poesía como tal, te, te pediría que nos leas... Eh, El el poema, Estar Quieta. Muy bien. Muy bien, pues. Entonces, te escuchamos. Pues voy allá, vamos a ver. Estar Quieta. Amo mi estar quieta cuando el suelo se rasga y esa tela delicadamente recia se hace barro, seco y nos traga. Estar inmóvil cuando me gritas esculpiéndome un aire irrespirable con formas cortantes y agudas. Cuando retumba el suelo bajo tu pie y mi puerta bajo tu mano, ahí me quiero sin oscilar. Amo mi vibración invisible y que nada se mueva. Cuando escribes con sangre que soy yo la que está rota, dejando renglones carmesí, ideogramas orientales, empapando con nuestra historia la pared. Amo mi cuerpo inmóvil, sosegado, puesto quieto por todos los ecos de la palabra puta que tu cincel talla, trata de hollarme en en mármol rosa y fecundarme dentro con esa semilla inerte. Ahí amo, por encima de todo, mi estar quieta. Amo mi no huir, ni tras ni por ti. Cuando la adorada rabia que guardas entre tus uñas, en los nudillos, me aúlla, corre. Quedo muda sobre mis rodillas, con la luz rasgada por un hilo púrpura que parte en dos hemisferios perfectos mi pupila. Al norte, volarse quieta. Al sur, caerse quieta. Amo mi estar quieta, entonces, cuando anda, quebrado el pavimento, descosidos los pies de los zapatos, sin quedar espacio entre la sombra, entre suelo negro y pie mudo. Cuando nací no sabía que mi mano iba a trazar el aire despistado entre los pasos y las calles, atrapando ahí lo bello que me abruma, escritura de sonido mudo sobre piel blanca. Disculpa que que ame mi estar quieta, renunciándote en tu abismo, en el que nada reposa, salvo una sentencia cobarde. Empieza el movimiento cuando tú me quieres quieta, por lo demás, elijo el impulso entumecido y el fervor sólido de una roca sin edad. Pero si tú me dices, ¡quieta!, yo surco el tiempo que no cambia. El mundo quieto es no escribir. Tu mano abre, quieta. Tu boca entra, quieta. Tu olor estalla, quieta. El mundo quieto es no leer ni los recuerdos. Tuve miedo de las cosas quietas, Todo nos debe una vibración leve, movimiento, aunque sea imperceptible, lleno de color cambiante y sinuoso. El miedo es algo quieto que te invita a ser miedo de uno mismo. Estar quieta, tras el grito, por el aire, frente al tiempo, vigilante, no hace ruido, porque nada permanece quieto.
0: The Lumpin' Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN-LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lumpin' Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay, produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lumpin' theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpin' Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Volt. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. Lumpin Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com.